Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. We're delighted to have you here. My name is John Hamry. I'm the president of CSIS. Wanted to have a chance to greet all of you. My Suzanne Spalding is going to introduce the Deputy Attorney General. I just wanted to say words of welcome. I know why you're all here. Uh, it's the same reason I'm here, is that's to listen to a remarkable man who has dedicated his life to the foundations of the health of American democracy, rule of law. He's uh, consistently been on the forefront of ensuring that America had a reliable, trustworthy, and credible legal system for all of us, for our well-being. And we're here to celebrate that today and to say thank you to him and to listen to him because he's going to have some very important and interesting things to tell all of us. Uh, when we have outside groups, we always start with a little safety announcement. I'm not worried about the Deputy Attorney General. He's got a lot of guys here that are going to take care of him. But I am worried about all of you. So if we hear an announcement, we haven't had this in five years, but if we do hear an announcement, please follow my directions. We're going to go through these exits right back here. There's the stairs that'll take us right down to the, to the alley. We'll take two left-hand turns, a right-hand turn. We're going over to National Geographic, and I'll pay for everybody's tickets to see the Titanic exhibit. It's, re <laughs> it's really great. It's a really a great show. Suzanne, why don't you get to, or Suzanne, come up here. Let's get this program started for you. But I just want to say, Deputy Attorney General, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you very much, Dr. Hamry, for those welcoming remarks. It's wonderful that you could be with us here today. I am Suzanne Spaulding. I'm senior advisor at the uh, CSIS, where I lead a project on defending democratic institutions. And I have the great privilege uh, today of introducing Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. After he makes his initial remarks, uh, he and I are going to move to the chairs here and have a little bit of a conversation, and then we're going to take your questions. You all have note cards on your chairs, and I would encourage you to be thinking, you know, as the, as the remarks are given and our conversation proceeds about questions that you'd like asked, and when you've written them on the card, just lift it up in the air, and our team will collect those cards and, and bring them up to me. All right. The Deputy Attorney General today is going to speak with us about the importance of defending the rule of law and what that means, and particularly as contrasted with authoritarian regimes such as those in China and Russia. Few are better suited to address these issues. Rod Rosenstein has spent 29 years in the Justice Department working to uphold the rule of law under five administrations and at least 10 confirmed Attorneys General. He has the distinction of having been the longest serving U.S. attorney in American history. It seems appropriate today to spend a few minutes describing the deputy's uh, distinguished career with the Justice Department, given that his tenure is soon drawing to a close, at least for now. Rod Rosenstein graduated summa cum laude from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and then went on to Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Law Review. On his way to being a successful lawyer at a big law firm, he then changed his plans after an internship with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts. The acting U.S. Attorney at the time was Robert Mueller. 
That experience, working with colleagues of, in his words, great intellect and integrity, set him on a different path. After serving as a law clerk to, Justice, to Judge Doug, Douglas H. Ginsburg on the prestigious uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, he joined the Justice Department in 1990 as a public corruption prosecutor in the criminal division, again under the leadership of Robert Mueller. He later served as counsel to the Deputy Attorney General during the Clinton administration and special assistant to Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division. From 1995 to 1997, he was detailed to Independent Counsel Ken Starr, assisting with the Whitewater investigation. He then became Assistant U.S. Attorney in Maryland from 1997 to 2001, when he went back to Maine Justice in the Bush administration, serving as Principal Deputy to the Assistant Attorney General for the Tax Division. In 2005, George W. Bush appointed Rod Rosenstein to be the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. He was the only U.S. Attorney in the country appointed by Bush who was later kept on by President Obama. And he was again held over by President Trump. Rod Rosenstein's long tenure as U.S. Attorney was marked by dramatic declines in murders and other violent offenses, attributed both to effective enforcement and prosecution, but also to robust collaboration between prosecutors, police, and the community focused on crime prevention. Equally impressive, he demonstrated his strong commitment to preserving public trust in the justice system by going after corrupt police officers, correctional officers, and even elected officials as doggedly as he pursued violent repeat offenders and large-scale drug dealers. In 2017, he was appointed by President Trump to be the 37th Deputy Attorney General of the United States, where his responsibilities include advising and assisting the Attorney General in formulating and implementing departmental policies and programs and in providing overall supervision to all of the organizational units of the Department of Justice. Most famously, of course, he appointed Robert Mueller as special prosecutor to ensure an independent and impartial investigation, and until recently was the DOJ official responsible for supervising that investigation. At his confirmation hearing, Rod Rosenstein pledged to, quote, work to defend the integrity and independence of the Justice Department, to protect public safety, to preserve civil rights, to seek justice, to advance the rule of law, and to promote public confidence. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein knows firsthand what it means to be bound by the rule of law, how important it is to earn and sustain public trust in the principle of a justice system that is fair and impartial and what happens in a country that fails to respect the rule of law. We are fortunate that he has chosen to take time today to talk about these issues with us, and I ask you to join me in welcoming him to the podium. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne, for that lengthy introduction. I regret that we've exhausted all the time for audience questions. You put your pens and papers down. Uh, but uh, it is a great honor for me to be here. I had the opportunity to meet with Suzanne and with Dr. Hamry before uh, we began this event today. And one of the issues we talked about 
was fake news. And so I feel obligated to correct the record, Suzanne, on just one point, and that is I regret I am not the longest serving U.S. attorney in history. Uh, I think I am the longest serving in this century, which is not all that long so far. Uh, but, uh, but in fact, in my home state of Maryland, there was a U.S. attorney who served uh, for 19 years, and I served for only 12, so I am far uh, from achieving that distinction. Uh, but I, my career in the department does go back so far that I remember when Bill Barr was the Attorney General of the United States. <laughs> he was actually Deputy Attorney General when I began my job uh, and then ascended the Attorney General position thereafter. And we are very grateful and very fortunate to have him back. And I think that is uh, yet another example of a superb appointment that President Trump has made, which I believe does demonstrate a commitment to the rule of law. And I'm grateful for the, to the Center for Strategic and International Studies for giving me the opportunity today to talk about my perspective on the rule of law and some of the things that I think that we're doing to accomplish that. A prosperous and safe society needs to vest some people with the power to govern, the ability to set enforceable rules, to punish violations, and to act on behalf of the people. The question is how that governing power should be exercised and controlled. One of our nation's founders, John Adams, advocated a government of laws, not of men. The goal is for the people who exercise government power to act in accordance with neutral principles and fair processes while respecting individual rights. The idea dates at least to the fourth century BC when the Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote, it is more proper that the law should govern than any one of the citizens. Last year, President Trump issued a proclamation explaining that we govern ourselves in accordance with the rule of law rather than the whims of an elite few or the dictates of collective will. Through law, we have ensured liberty. As the president recognized, law provides a framework for freedom. At its best, law reflects moral choices, principled decisions that promote society's best interests and protect citizens' fundamental rights. John McCarthy McGuire described law as a system of wise restraints that make men free. The restraints preserve liberty because they are prescribed in advance and they apply to everyone without regard to rank or status. The rule of law is indispensable to a prosperous and thriving society. It allows businesses to enter into contracts it gives innovators protection for their discoveries. It keeps people safe from dangerous criminals. And it allows us to resolve our differences peacefully through reason and logic. Justice Anthony Kennedy explained it this way. In a rule of law system, when you apply to a government clerk for a permit and you meet the criteria, you're not asking for a favor. You have a right to the permit and that clerk has an obligation to give it to you. In many countries, that concept of government officials bound by law to serve the people simply does not exist. Now, a society can achieve the appearance of the rule of law without accomplishing it in fact. In Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, a prince brags about his connections to the devil. He proudly proclaims, I can summon spirits from the vasty deep. His skeptical friend mockingly replies, 
Well, so can I. But the question is, will they come when you call them? An agreed-upon set of rules is a necessary condition for a system that operates under the rule of law, but it is not a sufficient condition. The rule of law is not just about written precepts. It's not just about the words. It depends on the vigilance and character of the individual men and women who faithfully implement it. The enforcement mechanism is crucial, as James Madison recognized in Federalist 51, because you must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. The founders of our nation well understood that challenge. First, they fought a war on their own soil to break free from rule by a foreign monarch. Then they operated for a decade under the Articles of Confederation with a weak central government that proved incapable of fulfilling its obligations. So in 1787, the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia to establish the foundational rules for a new form of government. The founders agreed on a written constitution establishing a system that divides government power among the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. The system protects against the concentration of power by allowing each branch to check and balance the others. Sometimes it's a messy system, as we see played out from time to time not far from here on Capitol Hill. The founders recognized that. When Benjamin Franklin was walking home from the Constitutional Convention, a woman named Elizabeth Powell stopped him and asked him what type of government the founders had created. Franklin replied with these words, a republic, if you can keep it. Some people think the politicians are responsible for keeping the republic, but Franklin spoke to an ordinary citizen, a woman who at the time did not even have the right to vote, but he said it was her responsibility, not his, to keep the republic. The lesson is that a constitutional republic success depends on people, on citizens, conscientiously applying and respecting the rules. And one indicator that we are faithfully enforcing the rule of law is when we accept a result, even though we personally dislike the outcome. We respect it because it's the result of a fair process, an objective analysis of the facts, and a rational application of the predetermined rules. An independent judiciary is a central pillar of our system. Our federal judges, by design, do not defer to the popular will. They do not run for election. They do not answer to the executive branch, nor are they beholden to the legislature. Their duty is to say what the law is independently and impartially. They take an oath to administer justice without respect to persons and to impartially perform their duties. The judicial branch is independent because we accept its final rulings even when we disagree with them. The judiciary serves as a check on the other branches, not a subordinate. Now American institutions and the people who compose them often fall short of our ideals. No system is infallible, but at its core, our society fundamentally respects the rule of law, by which we mean a system that is just and is protective of human freedoms. Not all nations share that concept. As we seek to build bridges with foreign adversaries, it's important for us to understand the differing visions that underlay their legal systems. 
In China, for example, the Supreme Court urged government officials to resist Western-style judicial independence, deriding it as erroneous and mistaken. The Chinese Communist Party sits above the government. In January, a party directive instructed the country's courts to protect the party's political security. Instead of maintaining independence from the executive branch, the Chinese judiciary's duty is to further Communist Party goals. The party controls the appointment of judges and even dictates some of their rulings. Daily practice in the courts is also a study in contrasts. In our courts, the presumption of innocence is perhaps the most important safeguard of individual liberty. When our government makes an allegation of wrongdoing, we need to prove it. We must present evidence that satisfies the rules governing miscibility. We need to call witnesses who remain credible when subjected to vigorous cross-examination. That's one of the reasons why it's important for government officials to refrain from making allegations of wrongdoing when they're not backed by charges that we are prepared to prove in court. In a trial, a defendant gets a right, an opportunity to present his own evidence and present his own witnesses. And that presumption of innocence is overcome only if we prove our case to the unanimous satisfaction of a judge and 12 random citizens. If even one juror is unconvinced, the defendant prevails. Government officials may sincerely believe a defendant is guilty, but their belief is irrelevant. Investigators and prosecutors in America do not get to decree which facts are true. In contrast, the Chinese system effectively presumes guilt when a defendant stands accused of a crime. Moreover, that presumption is all but irrebuttable. Chinese judges receive the government's evidence before trial without opportunity for comment or cross-examination by the defense. Live testimony is offered only rarely. There's little to no opportunity to impeach witnesses. Prosecutors, as a result, rarely lose. There are also substantial differences in our criminal arrest and detention practices. In the United States, a criminal defendant arrested by police without a warrant has a right to appear before a neutral judge within 48 hours. If police satisfy the judge in advance through a sworn allegation of wrongdoing and obtain a warrant before making the arrest, the defendant still has a right to review by a judge without a necessary delay. A criminal defendant may be detained in the United States only if there is a judicial finding that there's probable cause to believe that he committed a crime, not simply based upon the assertion of a government official. In addition, federal law still requires release before trial unless the judge finds by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant would pose a risk of flight or a danger to the community if he were released while awaiting an adjudication at trial. In China, forms of extrajudicial pretrial detention are enshrined in law. Last September, the former president of Interpol, Meng Hongwei, was forcibly detained by his own government without explanation. In China, that's not a violation of the rule of law, that's what the law permits. Among has reportedly been detained under a new form of custody known as liujir, or retention in custody. Under that form of custody, a suspect is held incommunicado at an undisclosed location and denied access to legal counsel and family 
for as long as six months without charges. And in Xinjiang province, Chinese law allows the extrajudicial mass detention of citizens who are ethnic Uyghurs, a minority population native to the province. Today, more than one million Uyghurs and other minorities reportedly are detained in internment camps. They're forced to renounce their culture and religion, and they face political re-education. That's today in the modern era. The province's law authorizes the arrest of anyone for violations that include expressing allegiance to Uyghur culture and reading prohibited religious books. Many people have been arrested and detained for long periods of time without charge, trial, or due process. Now, citizens of countries that operate in that way are subjected to rule through law rather than rule of law. The law does not charge anyone with serving as an independent guarantor of liberties or a check on political influence as in the American system. Instead, the law is an instrument of state power, a mechanism for rulers to maintain control and to quash dissent. In the absence of a culture that respects the rule of law, written protections are routinely violated and seldom enforced. Victims are bereft of any legal remedy. In those nations, law may be used instrumentally as either a weapon or a shield, not merely against their domestic populations, but also beyond their borders. They direct their transactional approach to the law outward with far-reaching effects. China, for example, appears to detain foreign citizens as a means of retaliating or inflicting political pressure on other countries. In 2014, Canadian authorities arrested a Chinese national named Su Bin at the request of the United States to face serious charges. We sought his extradition for hacking-related offenses and the theft of sensitive military and export control data that was sent to China. In an apparent act of reprisal, Chinese authorities apprehended a Canadian couple who had lived in China for 30 years without incident. They were accused of spying and threatened with execution. The wife ultimately was detained for six months before being released on conditions. The husband did not meet with a lawyer for almost a year. He was held for more than two years. Meanwhile, Su Bin, the defendant charged in the United States, consented to his transport here, retained a lawyer of his choice, and received all the protections afforded a criminal defendant in our system, including the right to a fair and open trial. In some cases, China, Russia, and other authoritarian nations overtly shield their nationals from the fair administration of justice. For example, they refuse, in some cases, to provide mutual legal assistance in response to justified requests from the United States and other countries for evidence necessary to criminal investigations and prosecutions. As transnational crime increases in scope and complexity, we increasingly face cross-border criminal investigations with defendants, witnesses, and evidence that span the globe. Countries depend heavily on the expeditious international cooperation to build cases and to locate arrest and extradite fugitives to hold them account, to account for their crimes. If we don't cooperate, we'll all be vulnerable to criminal activity by persons operating in other countries. Providing those sort of safe havens for criminals is a violation of the rule of law. Some countries also undermine the law 
by using extra-legal means to forcibly repatriate fugitives. China sends agents, known as fox hunt teams, to the United States and elsewhere to track down Chinese nationals accused of political or corruption crimes. Those squads enter foreign countries under false pretenses, track down fugitives, and deploy intimidation tactics to try to coerce them to return to China. Inside China, government officials possess authority to impose exit bans, prohibiting some foreigners from leaving the country without judicial approval. They sometimes use bans as a form of coercion to compel a victim's relative or friend suspected of wrongdoing to return to China. One American teenager, a college sophomore enrolled not far from here, is now trapped in China, being used effectively as a hostage in an effort to coerce his father to return to China. China's abuse of foreign visitors as political pawns caused the State Department to issue a travel advisory last month. Now, in the United States, we strive to faithfully and responsibly discharge our responsibilities to assist foreign law enforcement, providing due process, holding criminals accountable, and respecting individual rights. When Chinese citizens who commit crimes in other countries remain in China, China neither extradites them nor holds them accountable there. In contrast, the United States extradites its own citizens, as well as foreign nationals, when the law warrants it. Over the past five years, we have extradited 95 Americans. We also cooperate with other countries' requests for mutual legal assistance and for assistance in their investigations and prosecutions. We do so based on a fair-minded assessment of the evidence. Last year, for instance, the United States removed a Chinese fugitive, Xu Chao Fan, who allegedly embezzled $485 million from the Bank of China. Combating transnational crime requires foreign partners to act reciprocally, transparently, and in good faith. When a fair-minded assessment of the evidence establishes significant crimes, nations should not shield citizens from the fair administration of justice or otherwise subvert legal process. Some countries also seek to achieve their ends by changing global criminal justice norms. For instance, Russia and China seek to replace the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. That convention is approved and now in effect by 60 nations, including the United States. It harmonizes national interests and enhances the flow of electronic evidence among nations in order to facilitate the investigation of cyber crimes while balancing civil liberties and privacy interests. Russia rejects the Budapest Convention, complaining that it allows individual owners of data to control it. In its place, Russia seeks to allow a new convention that would enhance the ability of regimes to control communication, limit information system, uh, pardon me, limit information sharing between nations, and impede efforts to investigate cybercrime. We reject that effort to undermine the goal of an open internet governed by the rule of law and protected by international cooperation. I want to emphasize that the people of China, Russia, and other nations that do not share our respect for individual rights are not our enemies. It's good for us to seek common ground with their leaders. President Trump describes our relationship as a new era of competition. 
He extends an open hand to rival powers that seek to challenge American influence, values, and wealth. We will attempt to build a great partnership with those in other countries. But, the President says, in a manner that always protects our national interest. The rule of law is central to our national interest. But we cannot expect any system to be flawless in execution. The key issue is whether the government establishes fair rules, respects individual rights, and punishes violations. Consider the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. There may be factual disputes about who is responsible for an, pardon me, for an extrajudicial killing, but our allies must agree on the principle that each culpable person should be held accountable because a government that operates under the rule of law cannot condone the cold-blooded murder of nonviolent dissidents. Let me conclude with an observation. I'm proud to serve in the Department of Justice with 115,000 colleagues who promote the rule of law, a goal held jointly by our partners in state and local law enforcement. We share a noble calling to pursue justice, a calling enforced by the additional safeguard of an independent judiciary. We work regularly with our law enforcement partners in China, Russia, and other nations to advance our interests but always with a clear-eyed understanding of our responsibility to serve as vigilant custodians of the rule of law. Our Constitution aspires to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. In order to sustain it in an interconnected world, we should defend, cherish, and champion neutral legal principles and processes. And we should do so in practice and not just on paper. Thank you very much. Deputy Attorney General, thank you for those terrific remarks and, and uh, excellent discussion about the difference between the rule of law and rule through law. Um, and the competing visions around uh, the importance of an independent judiciary. I certainly recall well when I was traveling frequently to Beijing, uh, when I was the Undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security, often with your colleague, Bruce Schwartz, uh, and others from the Justice Department, and we would have conversations with his counterparts in Beijing, uh, where we would try to explain that why we could not um, as political leaders, in my case, uh, simply direct uh, our law enforcement folks or Justice Department or courts to take a certain action. And uh, I, I had a sense after you know, lots of these conversations that we were maybe making progress in enhancing mutual understanding about our systems. Um, but do you see any prospect for change? What is the prospect that that those uh, competing visions in China and in Russia uh, are likely to change in terms of moving from rule through law to rule of law? And what do you think is the role of international organizations in, um, in promoting a, a global consensus around the rule of law, organizations like Interpol? So I think uh, Suzanne makes a really important point. 
which is something, this is a pretty sophisticated audience, you probably appreciate this, but I'm not sure all Americans appreciate the extent to which we do engage with countries that are our rivals, including China and Russia. Uh, I have uh, uh, visited China myself as part of an Interpol conference about a year and a half ago, uh, and we have positive working relationships with law enforcement officials in, in all of these countries. Um, but the point, the underlying point, which I emphasize in my remarks, is we need to understand that they're coming from a different culture. They're coming from a system that has different values. And what we need to do is find a way to engage, promote American interests and American values, uh, while recognizing the limitations that our partners, that is our law enforcement uh, uh, colleagues in other countries have as a result of the system under which they operate. Uh, and so that we do have uh, folks in our government who understand that well, uh, people who Suzanne and I have traveled with uh, uh, and who participate when we meet with representatives of foreign countries. And I think it's important for us to understand that our, our goal is to advance American interests. Uh, uh, changing values in foreign countries uh, is a, a pretty big task. Uh, and I think that our primary goal ought to be finding a way to ensure that our values are enforced. A part of that, as I discussed, means that when foreign nationals are violating American laws, we need to make sure they're held accountable. Uh, when uh, evidence or witnesses are in foreign countries, we need a mechanism to return those folks here to hold them accountable under the rule of law. And that's why organizations like Interpol, uh, which I've been involved in, are really critical. And it's critical to make sure that organizations like Interpol share and operate under our values. There was some publicity about Interpol a few months back, uh, a contest for the presidency, which was ultimately won by uh, a career law enforcement officer from South Korea, because tools like that, the Interpol red notices, for example, which allow uh, fugitives to be stopped in foreign countries, are subject to abuse. They can be abused if the people who are seeking them are not appropriately enforcing rule of law norms. So uh, I think organizations like Interpol are an opportunity for us uh, to ensure that our values are respected, to promote our own interests. And in addition to that, and the point that Suzanne raises, it gives us an opportunity to communicate our values and principles to leaders of other countries, which may have an impact uh, on the way that they uh, view their legal system and potentially drive reforms. But I think we need to be realistic about uh, the limitations in our ability to dictate how other countries are going to operate their legal systems. So you made the point in your remarks that uh, you talked very eloquently about our aspirations for an independent and impartial justice system and operating through the rule of law, but that we're not always perfect. Uh, and, and certainly there's legitimate criticism uh, when we fail to reach our aspirations and very constructive work on behalf of judicial reform and justice reform advocates. But in the project that I lead here at CSIS, we are uh, looking at and have gathered abundant evidence uh, that, that uh, Russia, specifically, has uh, chosen to enter that debate in ways that are pernicious and designed not to make us better, but in fact to weaken support for the institution uh, of our justice system. Um, and and we, have, we have seen this in social media where they pour gasoline on the flames of division that engulf social media uh, when those divisive issues, particularly around immigration, racial justice, bump up against the justice system. Um, you know, accusing judges and prosecutors uh, of, of being uh, really puppets of the establishment, tools of, of political leaders. Um, and we, we see this quite pervasively. And my, uh, what, I, what I'm wondering is, 
Um, do you have a sense that Americans realize that these information operations, these propaganda campaigns, are not just about elections, which is where most of the public attention seems to be focused. You spoke in Aspen about elections being a, mm -hmm. one tree in the forest. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you have a sense that, that there's a growing awareness of these broader campaigns to undermine pillars of democracy, whether it's media or the justice system? Or well, I hope uh, that there's growing awareness. This is a good opportunity to, uh, to expand it, perhaps. Uh, and yes, it is important for people to understand that, that uh, you know, there are efforts by foreign countries, Russia in particular, to exacerbate tensions in America, to fuel uh, social tensions, and we see that played out uh, through the scheme alleged uh, in the indictment we returned last year, uh, charging particular Russian nationals with fomenting uh, controversy surrounding the 2016 presidential election. But as Suzanne mentioned, that's just one example. It, it isn't as if somebody woke up in 2016 and decided let's inf try to influence an election and let's just do this one thing. Uh, you know, we are involved in uh, relationships with rivals who have international aims that conflict with ours and who seek to gain influence in America. Uh, and so my role in this is really twofold. First of all, working with the FBI and with our intelligence agencies to combat foreign influence efforts, not just about elections, but efforts to exfiltrate technology, for example, uh, steal Amer secrets from American companies to compete unfairly. Uh, we, we combat this through counter espionage operations. We also combat it through criminal prosecutions, which involve our federal prosecutors. Uh, and also, another aspect of my role is to make the public aware uh, and, and make targets aware, companies and educational institutions that may be targeted by foreign nationals and average Americans who need to understand that uh, you know, what they're reading on the internet may not be what it appears to be. And that's not obviously a challenge unique to foreign influence campaigns. Uh, you know, there are efforts obviously to deceive people all the time through the internet and through advertising, but the, the particular threat that we face with regard to foreign governments is the ability to bring uh, a significant amount of resources to bear and concentrate them on particular issues uh, where they believe they can have an impact. So I think all, all the efforts that we are taking, uh, uh, I think will uh, be successful both in combating them and minimizing the uh, foreign efforts, uh, but also in immunizing Americans by warning them about the challenges they may face. So. One of the themes, the narratives that we see in the evidence that we've gathered and the data that we're looking at that Russia is particularly pushing is precisely uh, the, the notion that you raise about competing visions uh, of the justice system uh, and uh, uh, of law as simply a tool of political leaders. And that in fact, that is the narrative they are trying to push and convince Americans that in fact our justice system, our legal system, is just a tool of political leaders. And we saw it most recently, we've seen it across social media in many contexts, but we saw it uh, laid out very clearly in the criminal complaint last September against the Russians, uh, Project Laka, the uh, Russians who were engaging uh, with the backing of the Kremlin in, in propaganda efforts, where there were specific instructions given uh, to portray Special Prosecutor Mueller as a tool, as a puppet, quote, unquote, puppet of the establishment. Um, and, and lots of uh, efforts around attacking uh, both that investigation, but also DOJ and FBI, including yourself. Uh, and, and I wonder. I hadn't it, noticed. 
We'll, we'll share the tweets with you. I'm sure you'd love to read them. Um, no, I don't want to read them. <laughs> uh, but I wonder if you are concerned uh, about the impact that these kinds of narratives might have, for example, on the public's willingness mm -hmm. to accept the outcome of the special prosecutor's investigation. Well, you may be disappointed to know I'm actually not going to answer that question directly uh, because I don't comment on open investigations. But uh, I actually, I'm more optimistic uh, than your question suggests maybe that you are uh, about uh, the American people. I think that uh, you can be misled if you just follow the internet or cable TV uh, about what American people think and how appropriately skeptical they are of, of uh, information, that is that they don't simply believe everything that they see on TV or read on the internet. So you know, my experience in terms of the people I, I deal with in my daily life, um, outside the Beltway but even inside, is that uh, I think people are uh, appropriately able to balance different considerations. Uh, and so I am relatively optimistic about it. But I, I think it is important that we continue to, to highlight the threat, not, not just about that particular case or criticism of me or any particular government official, because frankly, you know, when, when you go into government, you, you have to recognize that you're going to be subject to criticism. That's part of the job. Uh, but I think people are able to step back and look at uh, a, a wider range of information uh, and evaluate uh, how the government is doing and hopefully not be unduly distracted by critiques like that one. So, as we've looked at uh, these influence operations, and they, they're coming from not just China, but other adversary nations, uh, and how to counter them. One of the key elements, it seems to us, is building public resilience against the, the, the messaging, not just taking down messaging and, uh, and, and, and working on other kinds of ways of deterring the messaging, but really building the public's ability to be resilient in the face of, of disinformation campaigns. And, and it's one of the reasons that I was so uh, grateful that you were willing to take time today to come mm -hmm. and, and talk about the importance of our system and the, of, of understanding and cherishing that system. Um, you know, what's your sense about the value of continuing to do that and the importance of civic education and reinstilling civic engagement in this country as a way of um, strengthening our resilience against these kinds of pernicious information operations? I think it's critically important. I, I speak uh, frequently, as I did today, about the founding era in the Constitution, because I think the further we get from the founding era, the more people take freedom and liberty for granted, and the less they recognize how much it depends on the governmental structures we have in place and the culture that supports it. Uh, and so I make it part of my mission uh, wherever I speak, uh, and I occasionally speak to student groups uh, as well as lawyers and, and uh, general audiences. I try to make a point of educating them about our constitutional system. I've seen it in my own children. Uh, my kids were still in high school when I was nominated for this position, uh, and they went through the confirmation process with me, and it was eye-opening for them you know, to see the uh, separation of powers and the tension between the branches play out. I'm talking about the confirmation hearing before I got really controversial, uh, even then. Um, and uh, you know, of course, as a result of subsequent events, you see it you know, all the more so. Uh, and, and they understand, and I think uh, as people pay attention to these issues, they understand that uh, um, democracy is messy. It's a messy system, but it's designed to be that way. And it's a product of the fact that people don't have a knee-jerk uh, uh, tendency to believe what anybody tells them, to believe what the government tells them or the media tells them. 
uh, it results in, in a messy process. So uh, I, I do think it's important to communicate that, uh, uh, that the, the freedom we enjoy is a product of a unique constitutional system, unique in the world, uh, that it's a better system than the systems in place in other places, uh, which doesn't mean it's perfect, doesn't mean it can't be improved upon, but I do think it's critically important to educate people about this so that they don't take things for granted. Because I think as kids grow up today, you know, their, their world is more interconnected. I, when I grew up, the world was pretty small. I mean, you, know, you, you didn't have communications with people from outside your neighborhood. Today, kids are growing up communicating daily with foreign nationals, reading things that are posted all over the world. Uh, and it's important for us to make sure we communicate to them about what is unique uh, in, in our system. And so I fully support those sort of civic education efforts, uh, and I try to do my part. Well, you're doing that today, so we're grateful for that. I loved, uh, along those lines, I loved your reference to Ben Franklin's uh, famous remark, or attributed to him, a republic if you can keep it, uh, and, and the way that you see in that an ob obligation on every one of us. I often uh, remark about the fact that our national anthem not only starts with a question, oh say can you see, but it ends with a question. Uh, does that star-spangled banner still wave? over the land of the free and the home of the brave. I'm on a campaign to get stadiums and, and uh, <laughs> uh, ballparks to put yeah. that question mark at the end. And I'm gonna work on that when I'm at spring training this weekend at yes. Nationals down in Florida. You, you hit a couple of my favorite talking points. There you go. Uh, uh, but, but, I, but I do think, how do we get across uh, to more Americans mm. that, that it, that is a question that is asked of them every day. Uh, and that they have a role in answering it. It's not just appreciate the wonderful system we have, but that we, all, we will lose it if, if we don't all understand that that system is, is there because of us uh, and we have an obligation to sustain it. So thank you for pointing out, we don't know exactly what Franklin said. The woman was not carrying a recording device, so we did not preserve <laughs> the exact words. Uh, so it's attributed to Franklin. Uh, and the Star Spangled Banner point, that's actually a, a really insightful uh, metaphor, I think, really, that the, the Star Spangled Banner, which we sing at ball games, uh, originally was a poem. The poem written by Francis Scott Key was a, a series of questions because he didn't actually know when the sun rose whether the Star Spangled Banner was still waving. He, he had to find out. Uh, and uh, I think it is uh, a useful illustration of that point, that uh, they, they were fighting for liberty. They did not take it for granted. And today, we shouldn't take it for granted either. And so uh, I think it's important for us to, uh, to engage in that kind of civic debate, to talk about why our system is preferable to other systems, uh, and to continue to improve on it. So in your confirmation hearing to be the Deputy Attorney General, you talked about the values you learned growing up in your small hometown of Lower Moreland, Pennsylvania. And one of those values was to, quote, try to leave things better than you found them. And those of us who've been privileged to serve in leadership positions in government certainly share that uh, objective and goal when we enter into office. So as you approach the end of your 29-year career in the Department of Justice and your time as Deputy Attorney General, how are you feeling, both in terms of what you have been able to accomplish and about the place this that you're leaving and, and its uh, well-being. I have thought about that. Obviously, we're in a politically challenging era, but a lot of eras are politically challenging. 
Uh, and so you need to recognize that when you take these jobs. Uh, I actually feel very confident about the Department of Justice. Part of it is because of the people that I work with, the folks that we have appointed in this administration, uh, which is really an outstanding group of political appointees who are working with our career folks to uh, enforce the rule of law. Not everybody agrees with our policies. That's what elections are about, changing policies. But the principles of the department uh, are being enforced. Uh, when we find people who, uh, when there are credible allegations of wrongdoing by department employees, we are taking action. It's not always as quick as everybody would like uh, because we do follow processes, obviously. Uh, but we are uh, taking appropriate action uh, and we are promoting the rule of law. And I think when you look back uh, in the long run, it's always hard when you're caught up uh, in, in any issue of significant public controversy to be objective about it. Um, but I'm very confident that when we look back uh, in the long run on this era of the Department of Justice, uh, we will be proud uh, of the way the department's conducted itself and the president will deserve credit for the folks that he appointed to run the department. Now, uh, Bill Barr, Jeff Rosen's been nominated to replace me, Chris Ray at the FBI. Now, these are folks we can count on to uh, promote and preserve the rule of law. So along those lines, we, um, we got a question uh, about what counsel you would give your daughters on public service, particularly in law enforcement and the Department of Justice. And I have a little sneak preview of what your answer might be, having read your remarks that you gave <laughs> last week in Wharton. I was telling the Deputy Attorney General at lunch that I thought about him last night while I watched a few minutes of the Academy Awards uh, because he, uh, uh, he quoted uh, in his Wharton remarks Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa. Philadelphia, my hometown. Uh, ben Franklin's from there too, incidentally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I encourage my kids uh, uh, to consider public service. I mean, you know, there are plenty of uh, patriotic Americans who contribute without ever working in government. So I don't think it's essential. But uh, their interest in public service actually has been enhanced as a result of my experience. You might think, oh, it's you know, so unpleasant to be criticized in the media and the kids would be scared off. They're not at all. You know, they're actually inspired by it uh, and they're inspired by the folks that I work with and the opportunity to, uh, to come visit the Department of Justice uh, and, and meet the people that I work with, uh, the career folks in the department and the other members of the administration. So uh, I, I encourage them and I, I think that uh, they do have an interest. One of my daughters is very eager, in fact, to intern on Capitol Hill. Uh, so uh, I anticipate that they will spend some time in public service. So I'll explain the uh, reference to the Academy Awards. The quote, of course, the Rocky Balboa quote that I had read the uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, use in his Wharton remarks was about, you know, it's not about how hard you get hit or how hard you hit, uh, but about uh, your ability to get back up when you've been hit hard. And, uh, and, I, and I, if I recall correctly, I think Lady Gaga made very similar remarks last yeah. night. So uh, I do not necessarily awards. endorse the Lady Gaga interpretation, <laughs> but I do uh, uh, invoke the original version, uh, the Rocky Balboa version. Keep moving forward is the conclusion. That's our motto. Uh, and my daughter, uh, Suzanne Mitchell, my daughter has clearly endorsed this because she surprised me, my 17-year-old daughter, uh, almost 17-year-old daughter, um, for my birthday, she actually had a quotation inscribed on a plaque uh, that I now have hanging in my office. So I know she got the point. Excellent. All right. So we have a question here um, about uh, our educational uh, opportunities that we provide. Over the past 20 years, we've educated many Chinese national PhDs. Uh, most now go back to China. Do you think we should require service or curtail this education how will we prevent a technological surprise and develop our own? 
So I'm not sure what that requires service reference means, but I fully support those kind of exchanges. I think that uh, people have the opportunity to see our system and understand how it operates. That will inspire them to make changes in their own system. I think that underlies uh, a lot of the president's approach to dealing with foreign countries uh, is, is we have such confidence in our system and we believe that if we expose people to our way of life and if they understand the benefits of following our model, uh, they're more likely to pursue peace and to adopt our values. So uh, I think that's a worthwhile program. I don't mean to suggest when I, we, we talk about, and Director Ray and I talk a lot about the challenge we face by virtue of Chinese nationals who are seeking to exfiltrate uh, secrets from the United States, that doesn't mean we should stop inviting them here. It just means we should be alert to the risk uh, and, uh, and make sure that we're not entrusting people with sensitive information uh, who, who may betray us and uh, provide it to our adversaries. So we have a question here uh, that, that points out that the United States uh, only ranked 19th out of 113 countries included in the 2018 Rule of Law Index. Um, while the global rank is high, uh, should the U.S. prioritize improving its rule of law to meet the standards set by those in its regional and income group? Um, and what initiatives would you propose to, to further that? And a related question is, based on your tenure in the department, are there reforms to the department that you think might um, enhance its uh, independence and public trust and confidence? So to take the first question, um I, I don't know who's responsible for those ratings or what criteria they're using, so uh, I'm not in a position to comment on that. Obviously, uh, any system can be improved. Uh, I happen to believe that ours is one of the best, and uh, uh, so I'm skeptical of anybody who ranks us 19. I'd have to study the other 18. Uh, you just don't know what criteria they're using, but you know, I have had now almost three decades of experience in our system, uh, and seeing how it operates gives me uh, great confidence so that's my view about uh, that issue. The Department of Justice, certainly, there are always reforms that we can make. We've actually made some reforms uh, in the department. We're always modifying policies and we're eager to look to uh, you know, things that have gone wrong and figure out how we can best address them. Uh, one of the challenging issues we face in the department, and this is an issue that uh, you know, we'll be discussing nationally, is the question of whether transparency is a good thing. You know, there's a knee-jerk reaction to suggest that we should be transparent about what we do in government, but there are a lot of reasons not to be transparent about what we do in government. Judge Webster is sitting here in the front row. He's been uh, doing this work since long before I. You know, the government, just because the government collects information doesn't mean that information is accurate, and it can be really misleading if you're overly transparent about information that the government collects. So I think we do need to be really cautious about that. Uh, and that's, again, not to comment on any particular case. There may be legitimate reasons for making exceptions, but as a general principle, you know, my view is the Department of Justice is best served uh, when people are confident that we're going to operate when we're investigating American citizens in particular. We're going to do it with appropriate sensitivity to the rights of uncharged people. And as I mentioned in my remarks, when we charge somebody with a violation, we need to be prepared to prove it by evidence beyond any reasonable doubt. And you know, the guidance I always gave my prosecutors, the agents that I worked with uh, during my tenure on the front lines in law enforcement were, uh, if we aren't prepared to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt in court, uh, then we have no business making allegations against American citizens. And so uh, I know there's tension there between the desire to be more transparent and let everybody know what we're doing and the desire to ensure the government, through its work, is not unduly tainting anybody. Uh, but my own view about it is that we're better off following the rules 
and, uh, and ensuring that our employees respect their obligations uh, to conduct their investigations in confidence. I think one of the uh, ways to address the challenge between uh, the benefits of transparency and circumstances in which uh, you know, transparency may not be possible or feasible uh, is, is to at least help educate the public about the neutral principles that are being applied um, to make those decisions and determinations so that they don't conclude that, that these are political. And certainly we've seen this again going back to the work that we've been doing here looking at uh, 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 efforts to undermine public mm -hmm. confidence in the justice <clears throat> system. Instances where transparency is not possible because of policies around privacy, so cases involving juveniles, for example, are particularly attractive targets for Russian uh, uh, propaganda efforts trying to sow false allegations and accuse prosecutors and judges of, 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 of keeping secrets uh, because they're doing something wrong. And one of the things we've thought about and talked with some folks about is creating a core of particularly attorneys and judges in that instance uh, who could help educate the public about process. Um, to help them understand why, in a case involving juveniles, all of the details may not be able to be um, brought out, but this is the process that would be followed, um, and, and the importance of having voices in local communities. Is that uh, something that, that the Justice Department has ever thought about in terms of you know, the importance of educating folks about those instances in which you perhaps can't be as transparent, but these are the detailed principles that guide those decisions, for example. Yes, and uh, that's an invitation really for me to expand on my previous answer, which is one of the things that gives me great confidence in the Department of Justice is the processes that are in place, and that's independent of you know, who's running at any particular time. Uh, and, and specifically, the Department of Justice, we have internal watchdogs, and I think many people are not aware of that. You know, there are, for, for example, individual members of Congress have suggested that you know, they need to be the reviewers of the work of the Department of Justice. And I've explained that's already been accounted for. We have within the department an independent inspector general, actually presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed, whose job it is to conduct independent reviews of the work of the Department of Justice when he determines it's appropriate. And those are fully independent reviews that result in detailed reports. Sometimes they're made public, sometimes they're sensitive and they're not made public. Uh, but when they find wrongdoing or misconduct, which they do, Regularly, uh, we take appropriate action. If there's potential criminal wrongdoing, we refer to a U.S. attorney for possible prosecution. If it's not criminal wrongdoing, we have the ability to impose administrative sanctions. If somebody's left the department but they violated the rules, we can refer them for disciplinary action if they're a member, for example, of a state bar association. We have in, uh, also in the Department of Justice an Office of Professional Responsibility, which has a unique uh, obligation and responsibility to review uh, the compliance of federal prosecutors with ethical rules. We have designated ethics officers who evaluate whether or not we have conflicts of interest or reasons why we shouldn't participate in particular matters. Our law enforcement agencies, including the Federal Bureau of Investigation, DEA, ATF, U.S. Marshal Service, also have their own internal Office of Professional Responsibility. So, uh, you know, my confidence in the integrity of law enforcement, it's not because I assume nobody will do wrong. On the contrary, I spent much of my career as a corruption prosecutor, I know that people in public office make mistakes and do wrong. My confidence is a product of the processes that exist and the folks who have responsibilities 
to review alleged wrongdoing, to make independent findings, and that I know because I've seen over the course of years uh, of experience that, uh, that they are aggressive uh, in making those findings. So uh, I think it is important, as Suzanne said, to, to message that, to, 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 to reassure people uh, that we do have mechanisms of accountability. We're not going to jump just because somebody goes on cable TV and says there was wrongdoing. But if our independent professionals in the Office of Professional Responsibility, the Inspector General, make an assessment and they determine either there is predication or even there's just concern about whether a process needs to be reviewed, they've got the manpower to do it. Our Inspector General has about 475 employees. I once said 500 in a congressional hearing, and he got angry with me. It's not that many. He wishes he had 500. I rounded up. Uh, but, uh, but the point is we do have the capacity to do that. And we have demonstrated, when I say we, I mean he, the Inspector General, has demonstrated his ability to do that. Uh, and so I think that that, I know that that's an appropriate mechanism to review these things, because some of the things uh, that we do just aren't appropriate to expose at a congressional hearing. It wouldn't be in the interest of America to do that kind of thing. Uh, but it is in the interest of America to know that somebody is going to be able to do it. And fortunately, we do have a mechanism that accomplishes that. So in the interest of transparency, uh, I understand, and, and explaining process, I understand and certainly respect your uh, general uh, admonition that you aren't going to talk about ongoing uh, investigations. Um, but, it, but I think it might be helpful for folks to uh, understand, if you can, discuss kind of generally what the process mm -hmm. is um, uh, with respect to something like the Special Prosecutor's <laughs> Report. Um, what, is, what, is the, what is the process then uh, that may not be completely visible <clears throat> to Americans, but that they ought to understand you know, is, is taking place? And is You're trying to make it worthwhile for the reporters who came all the way here hoping that I'd... <laughs> I'd fall for that kind of question. Um, but the answer is, um, you know, I can't generalize about it because the special counsel uh, regulation has only been invoked on a few occasions, and so each one really is somewhat sui generis. But the, it's important to understand the context. I don't have time to give you the whole context here, but um, before this regulation was adopted in 1999, uh, there were special counsels. There just wasn't a regulation that specified how they should operate. And for a couple of decades before the special counsel regulation, there were also what are called independent counsels. And now, most Americans do not know the difference between a special and independent counsel, but to me, it's a critical difference. An independent counsel under the federal statute that existed uh, up until 1999, it was a post-Watergate reform, created a prosecutor who was independent of the Department of Justice, was appointed by the judiciary, not accountable to the executive branch. Uh, and by 1999, there was a broad agreement among de Democrats and Republicans that was not a good idea, that the prosecutorial power should not be uh, vested in somebody who is independent of the executive branch and is accountable only to judges. Uh, and so we returned to the traditional model, and they codified it in the special counsel regulations to provide some guidance about w what they believe, that is the folks who wrote the regulations in 1999, was the best way to operate. And so we are now operating under those rules, and under those rules, the special counsel is accountable to the Department of Justice. There's a lot of confusion about this. There's no confusion by Bob Mueller or me or the people who are working with us about the accountability of the special counsel. Uh, and the responsibilities are set forth in the regulation. Uh, we're going to comply with those rules. The, the, the question that Suzanne adverts to, which has been a subject of much speculation, is what's the Attorney General going to do? 
You'll have to ask him uh, that question. But, uh, but, but we are, the special counsel regulation actually was put together in a very thoughtful way. And the goal of the special counsel regulation was to ensure that when the attorney general, the acting attorney general believed it was appropriate, uh, that we would establish a process whereby there would be some additional independence. And the structural independence really comes in in the fact that a special counsel, if the special counsel uh, proposes to take an action and is overruled by the attorney general or the acting attorney general, we're required to report that to the Congress. That's the structural independence provided in the statute. But the special counsel is a subordinate employee who reports to uh, the attorney general uh, or the acting attorney general and who complies with department policies, including the requirement to pursue, to obtain approval for certain actions, just like uh, an acting United States attorney, for example, would need to do. So. Uh, so I, I can't answer your question uh, because that's going to be a decision the Attorney General makes as to what to do with whatever information is provided to him. Uh, but I can tell you that I think the regulation was appropriately written to ensure that we can be confident that the investigation was conducted in an independent way and that uh, if that special prosecutor believed something should be done and we prohibited him from doing it, there would be a report about that to Congress at the end. Now, beyond that, uh, and I think Attorney General Barr is going to make the right decision. We can trust him to do that. He has a lot of experience with this. You know, Bill Barr, when he was Attorney General the first go-round, uh, in the course of his 14 months or so, he appointed a couple of special counsels in that era. They were not subject to this regulation, obviously, but, uh, but I think we can, we can count on him to do the right thing. Well, uh, it's been uh, terrific uh, hearing from you today and, uh, and and understanding, uh, again, all of the ways in which you have worked for 29 years to do the right thing. Uh, and we are extremely grateful, both for your public service and for your having taken time out of what I know is an unbelievably busy schedule to spend so much time with us today. And we're really grateful and wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.